This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. All right, we're here with Mike Bernard for this episode of Clean Tech Talk. Mike, of course, is a contributor to cleantechnica.com. I'm sure you've read every single one of his articles. If you haven't, you definitely should. Uh, and he's also a, a consultant. Uh, Mike, can you give a little more uh, intro on what you do day to day, week to week, month to month? Sure. You know, right now I'm a chief strategist for my own consultancy, TFIE Strategy Corp. But I've been a global technology strategist and architect with uh, major major global technology companies. That's taken me around North America into Sao Paulo, Brazil, and the Latin America leadership role. Fortune, Fortune 100, yeah. Yeah, and into Singapore with um, an Asian role working with the most complex things the major technology company was trying to sell to customers there. And I mean, you, from my perspective, you tend to be like a deep expert on a variety of topics. So you, you don't really find that many people who have really deeply, you know, deeply uh, analyzed so many different topics. And it seems to me, at least from my perspective, that, that you've done that with several things. So maybe you want to talk a little bit, just a little bit broadly again, just what those are historically, and then we'll sure. get into the topics for this, for this podcast. Yeah, but I, I, at first I'm going to make an excuse for that, you know, breadth and depth that I've got. I, I don't have kids and I don't watch major league sports. <laughs> um, so all that brain space and time space has to be filled with something. And in my case, I'm a bit of a nerd and I'm interested. I mean, as a buddy of mine says, we're generally interested guys. And so I've ended up going deep and broad in part just of interest, but also my career. I, I've worked in every sector, you know, almost every sector. I've worked in public sector. I've worked deeply in uh, healthcare automation. I've worked in public sector elections. I've worked in retail. I've worked in freight transportation with, you know, major rail clients. I've worked in the financial industry. You know, because of my consulting career, I've ended up engaging in deep conversations and gaining domain knowledge in areas where most people, you know, actually have a career that's a lot less ADHD. Yeah. But mine wind, happens wind, to have been fairly ADHD. Wind energy as well. I, I don't know how, how far you would say you've gone deeply into electric vehicles, but you cover them superbly for us uh, as a top analyst. Yeah, those, those are two pretty humongous time sucks that you've avoided. So, so that's a, that's a, it's good that you're using your, your time productively. It is not necessarily any more productive than uh, getting excited about Chelsea versus, I think that's soccer versus whatever, <laughs> whoever Chelsea. We could um, say Liverpool. I don't know who's in the top right now. I think Liverpool's doing well. But, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, um, what this means is that I, I've developed um, global acknowledgement of expertise in wind energy. And that was most noted by my you know, being given a position of senior fellow of wind for a U.S. think tank for a year, where I published a couple of interesting things. And then, what one topic you've you've uh, done a really interesting uh, analysis for years ago, before it became a big political discussion, was uh, universal basic income. Uh, I think Elon Musk had mentioned it a couple of times in passing, which had brought uh, a bit of awareness to the issue. And you did a really great deep dive for us. Um, we just re recently republished it, but I'm trying to remember now again, the original was published in 2015, maybe. I'm not sure, but uh, but it was a great sort of historical analysis and explanation of, of basic income. So 
I know you're working on that again. So maybe you can tell us what you're doing on that or, or, or you know, you can intro it how, how you think would be best right now. Sure. I mean, and this is another part of, you know, Mike Bernard's weird background. Um, one of the things that I've ended up engaging in in various parts of the world, dominantly in Canada, but also in Singapore, are social services and public health programs, both of which overlap with the universal basic income mandate of supporting, you know, people in our society. And so I've, you know, worked um, with deep experts in social services, and I work, you know, my clients have included provincial governments, social services organizations, and urban social services organizations that do, you know, income supplements and do uh, social programs. So it's partly because of my background, I have have a perspective that is not unique by any stretch of the imagination, but gives me a bit more depth to look at the universal basic income. Now, it was almost exactly three years ago, you asked, said, Mike, you know, this, this basic income thing, Musk said something about it. Can you go and look at it and come back and tell us what this means? But then it took me months to get my head around the various stakeholders and pieces, because what I found was it, it's a place that is highly... It's got a lot of people who really love it, but for very different reasons and with the expectation of very different outcomes. Um, it is really a place where a tremendous number of actual socialists, as opposed to the U.S. political language of socialism, actual global socialists, people who want to institute much more socialist programs, have one strong set of opinions that a basic income is a value. But on the other side, we have uh, people with strong libertarian backgrounds, um, in some cases, strong ideologies, but in some cases, just libertarian impulses who like universal basic income, often for different reasons. You know, it's, it's a really fascinating space. And that's part of the reason that we end up with these interesting discussions about basic income, because a, a simple Google search will find quite a remarkable number of different points of view. And some of those points of view, you know, if you read one and you're a Silicon Valley libertarian light techno optimist, you go, that's pure socialism. I don't care about any of that stuff. But if you read another one, you'll go, that's exactly what we need because AI is coming. And that's sort of the, the Andrew <clears throat> Yang and Elon Musk <clears throat> approach to it, it seems like. I mean, they're, they're, they're these uh, techno-optimists. I, I don't know about Yang so much, but Elon has, has some libertarian, you know, you know he's, he's sort of said he, he has libertarian tendencies, but then he's very clear on places where you need, you need the government to step in, for example, pricing carbon or, or you know, uh, correcting for the externalities of pollution, that kind of thing. Uh, and this is one where he's clearly stepped in and said, with AI coming, we need universal basic income um, and feels quite strongly about it. Uh, but I'll let you keep going on about the different approaches to it. It's an interesting point, you know, because uh, it, it has been surprising somewhat some of the people who have jumped on it, uh, who I wouldn't really necessarily think would be in that group of, of supporters. Yeah, it's a fascinating space because... As we look around the eight or nine test cases of what is formally a basic income, the, the experiments that have been running over the past three or four years, we see that the stakeholders drive the outcome. And then you see the critics, depending on which side of the fence are, are criticizing it because it's not really basic income. But that's because they have a view, a bubble of ideology around what basic income is and isn't. And they exclude stuff because it's outside of their value propositions. You know, so 
uh, on the socialist perspective, in this case, is actually the more conservative perspective. It's protecting people from rapid change. Whereas the libertarian perspective, the uh, Silicon Valley perspective, is enabling people to participate in rapid change by giving them sufficient security that they can be entrepreneurial. The One of the key tests in this area, you know, and this is an area that I have sufficient, uh, a, a great deal of sympathy for the social services and the socially oriented people, is that many libertarians want to supplant all targeted social services with a single universal basic income. In other words, they want to get rid of a whole bunch of social services, say for the mentally handicapped or the addicted um, or other subsets like um, battered women, and instead replace that with a single mechanism, often supported through the tax administration for simplicity of administration you know and so that leads to you know various that would be highly regressive it's it's it there's a whole bunch of things and as i look at i'm you know currently working through a specific analysis of yang's freedom dividend to see where it fits in these things and i find that it for example it's completely ignores the unbanked and underbanked in the united states Uh, a significant problem in social programs Say say that again put that in a different way sure um so 55 million people in the United States in 2018 were unbanked or underbanked. What that means is they didn't have any bank accounts or they only had access to a limited number of banking services, often at predatory rates. You know, and if you think about payday check cashing services, payday check cashing services charge 10% to 12% of the value of the check in order to cash to provide cash to the person who doesn't have a bank account versus typically in the one to two percent range for someone with a bank account it's really it's quite wild isn't it i mean it's uh it it just it you know obviously it's nothing new but it's it's just shocking sometimes to see how much the underprivileged are kept back held back from from social mobility socioeconomic mobility and how much the overprivileged are basically it's it's almost it's it's difficult to lose money. It's difficult to go down the ladder when you've gotten a certain amount of money. And, and uh, as long as you're quite sensible, uh, not necessarily like a failed businessman who, who just keeps getting bailed out by his dad or oligarchs, but we're not yeah. going go to go down that road. But uh, okay, keep, keep going. This is quite fascinating. Well, on that note, I mean, the, the people who are privileged who, you know, if we have, we look at the 360 million people in the United States, 55 million of them, don't have bank accounts or underbank. And most of the other 300 million are kind of not aware of that. They don't participate in the underbanking predatory economy very much. Maybe they do a loan aggregation once in their life and their family helps them out of it and that's it. Um, you know, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I had a bachelor's degree of sociology from, a, from an honors college. It's actually the number one college, public college in the in the country for people going on and getting a PhD and uh, also get a master's degree in city planning. And it's really a topic I have almost never thought about. And I mean, I, you know, you know about payday lending and, and get check cashing and all this stuff, but hearing you talk about it and hearing that figure was shocking. I mean, I was like, that's pretty wild to think about how many people. And then the average American basically has no more than uh, something like no more than $400 um, uh, basic uh, kind of security protection. Like if something goes wrong, it's going to cost them $500, they're screwed. And um, uh, I think that's the average, the American or the majority or something. Yeah. And now Yang's freedom dividend is, you know, right now, 
it's an unnuanced statement that it ignores in the public statements, the unbanked and underbanked. But let's take another example, the homeless. 553 homeless people in the United States on a given night. Now, the, many of these are one day and one week homeless. They have a temporary lack of homeless and that's a significant percentage, but there's a persistent homeless base. Um, you know, some of them I've known and you know, one guy I took care of for years until he managed to actually get a permanent residence in Vancouver. Um, and this is a really interesting space in part because if we look at the homeless, how do you send them a check? How do they get this $1,000 a month? They can't get a bank account without an address, without a fixed address. And so you, you look at that most, the people who can absolutely most need this, because you know, the 12,000 a month, the um, US poverty threshold is $11,970 a year. And the freedom dividend is $12,000 a year, like $30 more. So it's just above poverty threshold. It's the equivalent of poverty threshold. It's tied to inflation, so it will increase slightly over the years. But those homeless people, how do they even get it? I remember when I was working with um, uh, with Alberta's Community and Social Services, um, and we were discussing the implication and impact of the uh, major wildfires that destroyed, you know, Fort McMurray uh, up in the oil sands region north of Edmonton. And the social services people are the only group in Alberta who are capable of delivering preloaded debit cards with the supplement to anybody anywhere. And they'd figured out this department devoted, this you know, state-level department devoted to figuring out how to get services to the homeless and the unhomed, how to get money to them. But if you think about the libertarian perspective on a basic income, it's intended to get rid of that department. It's intended to get rid of those custom spaces where people, they have all the social workers in the streets and all the caregivers in the streets finding those people. Yeah, I think, uh, I think as you sort of alluded uh, early on, what, what universal basic income would be would be hugely dependent on who would be implementing it. It could be dramatically different based on who's implementing it, based on, you know, how much they retain these kind of things versus crush them. Uh, one interesting, uh, we've had a lot of discussion sort of in a, in a kind of team uh, uh, writer and, and uh, uh, we have some people behind the scenes who are not writers uh, group. And um, we've got a number of people from Europe, of course, and we've got we've got a, some at least one libertarian on the team and um, some other sort of an, more anti-government people. Uh, so yeah, we haven't we often have these kind of you know, sort of discussions, debating quite at length, you know, European type of social safety nets and social services versus U.S. U.S. you know lack of social social safety net. And one thing one of, one of the Europeans was was pointing out is you know. As when you're providing enough of a base, you know, level of, of quality of life, you know, with, with housing, with, with food and everything, for example, in Germany or the Netherlands, you are sort of, sort of close in theory to universal basic income in practice, even if it's not called that, even if it's not $1,000 straight or something like that. And his perspective was, you know, it's probably better to build on that or try to build up that kind of thing than huge revolutionary new policy that would probably have a very difficult time in the U.S. of getting through the Republican Party. Um, what's your what's your general take on that, that sort of, that kind of presentation of, of the matter and, and that kind of framing of, of social safety nets, social services versus, uh, versus universal basic income? 
Well, you know, being a Canadian, I, I have a, thankfully, a social safety net that's a lot more European than, you know, the United States version of it. So I, you know, have a tendency in that way. I, I'm, you know, by especially Republican um, rhetoric these days, I'm obviously a socialist, but that's not the case. I'm barely even a Bernie Sanders social Democrat. But as we look at this, it's a really interesting point on this to me. One of the big differences is, does it replace or does it add to? And it, universal basic income has a substantial value in, in terms of creating income, consumers, it creates um, security, but it, it doesn't, as we've discussed, find its way to the most needy. So you need to have both. So many of the most hardcore libertarian perspectives are to eliminate other social programs entirely. Now, Andrew Yang's is a bit more nuanced. You know, the old age security in the United States, it's not clawed back. As part of that, it's in addition to, and it's the benefits for veterans are not clawed back. They're, the basic income is in addition to. But the first thing Yang's website says is we're going to find most of the money for this or a big chunk of the money for this from social services. It's a very much a. It's that not super democratic, not super <laughs> super progressive or or left wing, um, and it's it's really I, I think like you said it's something for the most part I assume being glossed over or or not recognized at all um, is you know it's not a thousand dollars on top of everything it's thousand yeah. dollars taking that from some things that uh, go to the underprivileged. Well, as I said, it's a bit nuanced because there's the, the primary ends of the spectrum is how do you pay for um, this? And the pure libertarian and that, view. And I mean, that this is also, I mean, just pause for a moment. I mean, he could have, I mean, politics and policy is always different. I think David Roberts of Vox, uh, when he was at Grist, uh, made this point very well. Politics and policy are two totally different things. And so Republicans are really good at playing politics uh, in our, and sort of avoiding the, the, their un unpopular policy perspectives because basically Republican, uh, the Republican Party's policy perspectives are not popular, but they're very good at, at politicizing things in a way that's uh, that works for them on campaigns. Uh, but, you know, the Yang note there, you know, I wonder, I have no idea if it's something to appeal to those you know, libertarians, uh, right wing, more leaning people. But in the end, it, you know, it's all going to be about implementation. And you don't actually know how someone would go about implementing until they get to that stage. I mean, this is always the question with politics. Right? Yeah. If you look at the global perspective, there's the dichotomy is you pay for it with more taxes and less military, or you pay for it by cutting other social programs. That's kind of the two ends of the spectrum. And Yang fits kind of in the middle. So he's going to actually have a value-added tax like the European VAT of 10%, mostly on the wealthier, and that's going to bring in some of the income, and he's going to get, but his first statement is cutting social programs. So he's kind of in the middle. He doesn't mention the military expenditures in the United States at all. He leaves that well alone. That's interesting. And I mean, it's, I, I mean he, he seems like a very honest guy, but at the same time, he could be very shrewd politically and say, you know, let's not not go down that road because then we'll get slammed, you know, but he, you know, the U S military obviously takes a 
ginormous amount of the U.S. budget. I, I'm sure you know better than I do historically how much over-militarization has helped crumble uh, giant societies because they, they get just sort, sort of put, start putting too, too much money into that aspect of, of their budget instead of taking care of their people. But um, yeah, I, I interrupted. Let, let you keep going. Well, yeah, the, the military thing is a, you know, a potential rat hole. And you know, part of my background, I was a military brat, and I was in the Canadian military reserves, which I'm just going to say is, was actually a well-organized militia. A little red, little <laughs> dog whistle there. Muted. I was muted and laughing. This is good. Um, so Yang is in the middle there. He doesn't mention the military. So he's, he's avoiding that subject. But the, the question becomes, what is the motivation the libertarian motivation is to enable more people to be entrepreneurial and in general. And the more socialist perspective, the European perspective is more the Nordic value of living well, that whatever you choose to do has inherent value. And there's a really interesting question to me, and I keep saying that, so I'm going to try and stop using that really interesting question to me because I Almost everything's a really interesting question to me. I'm a nerd that way. I hadn't noticed that. I mean, everybody's got their patterns of. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that yet, but uh, it's. Tell the editor to edit that out every time I say. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's I like it. Um, the the question becomes: in a future Star Trek universe, a universe of plenty, which is part of what um, the Silicon Valley libertarian light theme is, what is the meaning of work? And a lot of the basic income things are talking about the value of choosing to live how you live, the choosing of comfort, the Nordic concept of hygge, which is comfortable clothes and candles and blankets and just feeling cozy, and the five, six-week vacations. But that runs into, in North America, especially in the United States, the Protestant work ethic perspective stating that people only feel good if they are contributing monetarily in an economically justified job. Um, and so there's a, a perspective on how we view work. Work is a means to an end, or it's a value in and of itself, that is fundamentally at odds between you know, European, especially Northern European, and you know, the uh, Iberian Peninsula views, and United States views. And so the basic income from the Yang uh, campaign is more focused on that value of work perspective rather than the value of leisure perspective. It's quite, in, uh, it's quite interesting. That's my phrase. It's quite interesting. <laughs> the, uh, on the one hand, he, he's, he's an entrepreneur. He's obviously a techno, techno optimist kind of guy. But I, I, I believe I have seen him in, in interviews talking about how a universal basic income allows you to put value on the work of a stay-at-home mom, the work of a of an artist, the work of of different people. So I feel like he's he's touched that. But I, yeah, it's uh, it's really fascinating what you're bringing up in, in that you know <laughs> there are very different UBIs, and of course the mainstream coverage of of him and when, whenever they interview him or anything is, is very simplistic. It's just like, yeah, let's look, let's, well, it's always interesting to look at the statement of benefits and what order they appear because they're carefully crafted typically. Um, and this is a major, this is his signature campaign. So they argued about the order and I'm just reading from their website. UBI encourages people to find work. That's the very first benefit. 
UBI reduces bureaucracy. That's the second benefit. That's a small government statement. UBI increases bargaining power for workers. That's an individual bargaining power, not a collective bargaining power perspective. Once again, libertarian right of refusal as opposed to a collective negotiation stance. So it's not a collaborative stance. It's a, no, I don't want to do that stance. Now, and UBI increases entrepreneurship. So these are the first four. Yeah. Well, Work, the, and the thing that jumps out to me again is it's sort of the same concept, but it's, um, you know, it, it might just be, it is what it looks like it is. It's, it's, it's what it is on the face. This is what they're prioritizing. This is why they're interested in it. Uh, it would fit with his background. On the other thing, on, on the other, other hand, you know, what comes to my mind is if I was on his campaign team, and I'd say, look, we're running as a Democrat. They're going to try to they're going to try to swing this as a socialist, uh, hardcore socialist agenda. How do we get in front of that? How do we avoid that? And I would highlight, I would you know look to highlight those exact same things that would appeal to a libertarian uh, rather than uh, a, a progressive who might just be on board with this right off the bat from the sort of obvious benefits to to social, but on the or it might just be what it looks like. <laughs> they they have a libertarian kind of angle on it and um, a kind of more of a takeaway services and, and reduce government while giving people money kind of angle. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, let's look at the Finnish experiment for a minute because the Finnish experiment is kind of an interesting subset of how this all plays out in reality. Um, so, so Finland famously did a, a universal basic income uh, experiment in a specific region for two years. You know, and they, they didn't get all the attributes. It was 2,000 people. Um, it wasn't means tested. Um, they got this guaranteed chunk of money. But they picked a specific place and for a specific reason. The, the government that was in, um, brought in in Finland was center-right by Finnish standards, which is to say it's overlaps substantially with the, the Democratic Party of the United States. You have to get fairly far right and extremist in European politics before you find Republican policies, uh, as the Manifesto Project has made clear uh, with its publications and assessment of the electoral campaigns of parties in mostly Western liberal democracies. Very interesting stuff and separate discussion. But the center-right party had more of this theme of getting people off of social services, getting people back to work, getting people to be entrepreneurial. But the subset of the people they picked and where they picked it was very interesting from that perspective. And the results are interesting because the two years is over. Not all results are in, but we're now in 30 months since the thing started and it finished six months ago. So the position for the 2,000 people, the town they picked is Nokia's global headquarters. The people they picked are people who were laid off mostly from Nokia with strong STEM backgrounds and technical backgrounds, which in theory would enable them to have entrepreneurial capabilities if they had the money to do it and they had the security to do it. And that wasn't clawed back if they successfully created new businesses, right? So you can start to see the shape of this. Um, it's part of the, as you, uh, we started down this thread a little bit, I'll just tug at that thread a bit, we talked about Silicon Valley. Yeah. It's been claimed many times that entrepreneurialism is a sport for the rich. It's a sport for millionaires, people who can afford to take fiscal risks with their businesses because it 
they know they're not going to end up on the street. And so this is the model. And I was going <coughs> to give, give it kind of that that case study in Finland, a kind of U.S. Uh, centric, you know, example um, for people. Maybe it might help with is, you know, you, you could imagine, for example, Cupertino or Apple's offices there or something there, major tech thing there in Silicon Valley shuts down. And you've got a lot of rich, you know, tech engineers who have homes there and who who would love to live there. And it sounds like that's basically more or less that's who this experiment helped. And then and then they, you know, obviously, yes, they would have more opportunity for starting another <coughs> company, company that would end up successful, but it wouldn't be giving money to people in central Detroit or uh, or uh, some some other less advantaged area. So that's quite fascinating um and so they they finished the experiment and the results came back and said people were kind of happier based upon 70 percent of the assessments of happiness and there are psychologically found uh well-founded ways of assessing happiness through surveying um techniques now you can actually do some stuff and they're you know big five personality trait stuff that are reasonably good from a social Uh, social sciences perspective. You probably know more about it than I do based upon your um, educational background. But I would not assume I know more than you about almost any topic, uh, very frankly. I mean, it's like, hey, if I need someone who might know a lot about some topic, I'm going to Mike and we'll see if he, we'll see what he knows. <laughs> This has been stated at work. I remember one time they flew me into um, Edmonton for a two-day workshop because we were bidding upon the Fairbox replacement system, automation of fare collection for the urban transit system in Edmonton. And I'm just a useful guy. And I have, <laughs> it turns out that I, you, you know how much of my background is urban development and planning because you and I have talked about this in the past. It's your actual master's, but you and I, you know, you love some of the articles. It's my master's and I would bet money that you know more about it than me. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, the program I went to was a top program in the country for land use planning when I graduated. But I would... I would not even, I would bet money, you know, twice as much about me on the subject than I, that, like at least. But it, it's, it's not necessarily as well structured. Um, that said, it is kind of that weird thing. Moving back though, back to the Finnish experiment. So the Finnish right. experiment found that there was a slightly increased happiness, but there was apparently no greater employment. That seems to be the indication right now. But these are long trending things. Governmental programs, governmental social programs are designed to take, are not quarterly programs, they're decadal programs. I was having this conversation yesterday with one of the senior people in the uh, digital you know, innovation, digital innovation supercluster that the federal government in Canada funded with uh, 400 industry partners that's based in Vancouver, um, which is designed to increase employment across Canada in modern economy jobs and increase Canada's global competitiveness. But that doesn't happen overnight. This is creating a specific cluster of tech, future technology companies which create the ecosystem with governmental agencies, industry, and academics, so that in five and 10 years, we have a hotbed of a specific type of industry that's more centered in this geographic location than say in downtown Montreal. Um, and so that's a similar type of thing that we end up talking about with social programs. How long does it take for a social program 
to deliver value. Is two years enough is one of the questions that's being asked about the finish experiment. Yeah, and there's but, really, I mean, there's obviously huge difficulties with um, socio socioeconomic, you know, analyses, long-term impacts or stuff that you you never, you can never tie effects to causes uh, very conclusively with, with uh, some, you know, some policies. It's just, you know, you sort of, you have a theory that, that it works or you have a theory it doesn't work and, you know, you either run with it and, you know, measure the best you can, analyze the best you can, but you can't, you just can't control for enough factors in the real world with, with these kind of things. They are wicked problems. They have huge yes. interrelationships and they take a long time. See, you there, that's from, that's from graduate school. I, I forgot about that. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Oh, look at that. He's, he's reminding me of my, uh, I've been out of touch with it for so long too. And I think, I think you've done better at, at following up, you know, keeping in touch with it. Um, I haven't had children. Yeah, yeah, that makes a difference. I don't have daddy brain. I also don't. Yeah, I, I at least avoid the sports uh, to to keep uh, keep learning about other topics. But uh, well, I, I'll let you if you want to wrap up on that topic a little bit. But I'm I'm actually a little um, interested in transitioning because we put Yang in this kind of interesting techno optimist frame a, a few times. And I think one of the other places where he's a bit controversial, he just came out with a big climate pl- climate action plan that, that I've heard is very good. I haven't analyzed it, but, but I know he, he got a bit of pushback from some people for his, his sort of statement that we have to jump into gen- geoengineering and uh, his sort of, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're, it, it's sort of too late. We have to start looking at geoengineering seriously. And this is a very complicated and, and divisive uh, debate in the climate climate activist, climate policy world. Uh, but it also ties to work you've been doing recently on, uh, you know, it ties to the topic of carbon capture and storage as well. And, and how much this is, you know, people just say, well, we just gonna, we're going to need it because we're screwed. But you have to look at it a little more in a detailed way. And you and Mark C. Jacobson have done great work sort of analyzing, well, how much is it worth doing it versus putting that kind of money into other things? But I'll, I'll let you take that completely rambling, um, scattered um, intro and go wherever you want, either talking more about UBI to close out or, or um, dealing with some of uh, these topics of geoengineering, carbon capture and storage, that kind of thing. Well, let's, let's talk about climate change in the Democratic Party. You know, so famously right now, or infamously, the Democratic National Convention has chosen not to do a climate change debate. You know, and there's a lot of people who are saying, why, it's the big issue and we should do it. I have a different perspective. So I, I recently went through the top four candidates, Biden, Warren, Harris, and I forget who the fourth one was, but it's the fourth one. Uh, Sanders. Um, Sanders, thank you. And their campaigns all commit to the Green New Deal, which I've also read and also analyzed. And so if you look at the, if if you're a betting person, and I have played Texas Hold'em in casinos around North America and online, and I have a, I'm in the 93rd percentile in Texas Hold'em, which means to say I've only lost $200 in my lifetime career. And no, it's really, it's a math issue. I, my, I think people who don't know much about it, it sounds like, what, you're a gambler? But uh, my, my brother-in-law was a professional poker player and uh, it was just all about math and, and probabilities and made, it, made a ton of money. He, he was on the, I think, top 20 championship once in Vegas. Yeah. Uh, but then he got out of it when they changed the sort of online gaming regulations in the US or something, I think. But, point of the gambling part. But is, it's a math thing. It's a math. The math thing says one of those four people is going to be the Democratic candidate next year, not, and, not Yang. So 
the Democratic Convention, it's become a bit of a, it's almost on the left what the equivalent of some of the you shall raise no taxes um, and you shall not do gun control pledges of uh, allegiance that Republican candidates are required, have been required to sign over the past decade or 15 years. Some of the Tea Party-esque pledges, which have skewed American politics somewhat. This is kind of like that. It's almost a rite of passage now about, for Democratic candidates, do you support the Green New Deal? Yeah. And it was controversial not, for a while. Do not, break, do not break rank, do not talk <laughs> back, do not you know, do as you're told, or you're, you know, you're not progressive enough for us. Yeah. But, you know, I, I've read it and I've read the Canadian precursor to it, the Leap Manifesto. And, you know, Naomi Klein was involved somewhat in both and her partner, whose name escapes me because I'm bad with names, but you probably know his name. He's I'm, yeah, I don't remember the name either. I'm, not, yeah. I'm horrible with names. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. The, uh, the point, though, is the, the Green New Deal the fundamentals about climate change make perfect sense. And regardless of the senator from Utah who showed up in Congress with a picture of Ronald Reagan riding a velociraptor, carrying a machine gun, there's an actually, you actually have to erect a straw man that is not what the Green New Deal says in order to attack it. And he did. He said, nobody will fly. Um, that's not what it says. It says, where viable, we'll put in, uh, we'll consider high-speed trains. Uh, and if you look at the rest of the world, high-speed trains are non-controversial subject. Um, Europe has a lot. Japan has a lot. China is aiming for 38,000 kilometers. That's like 28,000 miles. That's all the way around the Earth of high-speed rail, all powered by electricity. And the speed is much I mean, high-speed rail there is much faster than high-speed rail, generally speaking, in the U.S. We're talking... We're talking um, passenger jet, regional passenger jet travel speeds, four to 500 kilometers per hour, you know, and intercity transit that is, you know, very convenient and has, gee, a lot less security theater than flying in North America does post 9-11. And, and I know I've flown all over North America and around the world in the past decade. So I know how differentiated the security theater is in the United States and as a result, Canada and Mexico versus the rest of the world. But still getting on a train, much lower security requirements than getting into an airplane, regardless of where you are. And so the, the Green New Deal would result in high population corridors with strong volumes of you know, half hour or hourly flights by multiple providers getting high speed rail. And that's kind of like the northern end of the eastern seaboard and the southern end of the western seaboard. Right? San Francisco to San Diego, maybe, but San Francisco to LA for sure. Not north of San Francisco. Sorry, Portland. Sorry, Seattle. On the eastern seaboard, you know, you'd be, you know, New York, Boston, Washington, kind of collected into that. It's a major corner now. It's it's hard to differentiate. You know, people who live over there, they drive from city to city, and they never see anything in between the cities except city and suburbs, in many cases. But those are dense enough by European and Asian standards, that they would support high-speed rail. And that's all the Green New Deal says, is that where it makes sense, let's do something about it, and let's put the weight of the federal government behind that. Let's you know, take advantage of eminent domain and other things that enable us, to, enable us to pay people market rates for their property, but require them to take the money and clear the right-of-ways and create a low-cost thing. Now, personally, I, I'm not that huge a fan of high-speed rail in North America, because autonomous electric vehicles and electric regional airplanes are coming a lot faster than high-speed rail would go. But it's an, that's a 
debate over the decarbonization tactic, which is well within the domain of what the Green New Deal supports and doesn't support. But then we get to Andrew Yang. He's a real outlier. You know, as you said, geoengineering, but also thorium. When was the last time you had a, you know, I, I think you've got a specific ban on talking about thorium reactors and clean technica, don't you, Zach? <laughs> well, it's got an interesting history. <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we used to have the, those debates used to come up uh, quite regularly. I, it's been a while since I've had anyone try to bring up thorium into discussions. We had, I mean, we had people pushing quite hard, I would say even very notable people i'm not gonna get into it but pushing hard for coverage of thorium on on clean technica i mean notable in our circle not notable beyond very far but uh but it's it's again that it's it's something like a kind of uh, as you said a kind of outlier kind of fringe topic that's appeals to i don't know an, an interesting subset of of the culture of the society that's um quite outside of of even uh the progressive mainstream yeah, I mean, it's it, the the arguments for thorium. I'll, I'll net them out, and you're going to end up writing articles on thorium because Andrew Yang wants thorium, and he's part of the cut of ten Democratic candidates. So your readership is going to want to know what the heck that means. So you're going to end up with an article or two on it. But the um, the argument for thorium is that it's not a weaponizable form of radioactive material. It's fairly common compared to uranium, and with you know, molten salt reactors, and um, you can end up with uh, breeder reactors uh, in the next generation Gen 4 reactors, which can use thorium as their fuel instead of uranium and not allow a, a, a stream that leads, in theory, to weapons. And it's not a stream, in theory, which leads to proliferation of technology, which supports nuclear weapons, and it's lower radiation, all of which are arguably false. You know, breeder reactor by definition can be also be used to top grade uranium, turn into fissile material for nuclear weapons. Uh, the degree of radiation is high and the technology itself, while it's proven in the lab, is completely unproven commercially. It's similar to the article I published recently on Bill Gates and his fascination with nuclear power and his Terra Power, you know, advanced nuclear thing company that he started in 2006. And, and he went to Congress in January of this year and said, I'll put a billion of my own money in it and I'll guarantee raising another billion of private money if you green light Terra Power and nuclear going forward, because that's the solution to global warming. But the problem with all of those statements, with Yang's statement about thorium, and, and I'm going to be really clear and transparent here. I've seen two headlines on geoengineering and thorium. I have not assessed the rest of Yang's plan. It's on my to-do list and I will publish that and I'll make some statements and so we'll at least have all. But right now, I know thorium is a dead end. People point to China and say, well, China's got a huge thorium thing. No, they put $23 million into which thorium is, experience. Which is like nothing. Which is literally nothing. And they point to India India's got this huge, no, it's got a couple of conferences a year and an equivalent amount of money to what China's putting into it. Thorium is bubbling along like airborne wind energy. It's an obsession in certain classes of academia where they explore out their ideas and have fun and explore the engineering concepts without necessarily commercializing. And it's an obsession of typically people who are not involved in the actual energy industry and focused on empirical reality. Yeah, time and time again, it's people who come from other disciplines who 
think they're just going to jump into energy with some kind of silver bullet solution. And, and I mean, yeah, we, we had discussions go for, you know, uh, for hours, for days on Clean Technica in the past about this. And we, yeah, we, I don't know if we banned the, the, the term, the discussion we might have, uh, but it just got to the point of over and over again, you would go through the same talking points, you would debunk the same talking points, you get to the end and there would be no response to the to the reasons why Thorium is a dead end. And um, so we just, we, obviously people got tired of, of explaining it over and over again. But one, one big factor is cost. So maybe you want to say a little bit about, about just the, the cost matter of, of these different solutions. Sure. So anything that's nuclear that uses fission or fusion is going to end up with radioactive waste. And that is something which requires security because terrorists and failed states and you know in the United States would love to get their hands on enough fissile material to create a dirty bomb. Fertilizer bomb with some radioactivity, that creates a lot more terror than just a fertilizer bomb. Um, so you put security around it and you have layers of security in um, if you think systemically, as we did, you know, started to at the beginning, talking about how three-wheel electric vehicles are cool as long as you don't think beyond that to the systemic implications of three-wheeled electric vehicles. The nuclear industry has global supply chains for fissile materials, which must be secure. It has sites where, you know, regardless of the technology, whether fusion or fission or molten salt reactors or small modular reactors, you end up with irradiated infrastructure, which must be treated for decades as radioactive waste, which requires security. It's not like it's terrible. It's, I, I, I'm not against nuclear because it's bad for the environment. It's just those are layers of cost. If we look at the United States, 99, mostly pressurized water reactors, you know, older generation stuff, the same stuff that uh, the United States put in its nuclear submarines, hence the reason it became a dominant technology in the United States. Right now, the operation and maintenance cost per kilowatt hour for those 99 reactors is 3.83 cents US per kilowatt hour. That's just the operations and maintenance costs. That includes fueling, includes all the people, includes the security which is bundled into the cost, but not the externalized security from police forces and the military, which wrap layers of defense around these fairly, these fairly interesting targets. And, you know, from a terrorism perspective, you don't target nuclear reactors because they're hard targets because they have overlaying, overlapping layers of defense from the local private security forces to all the police forces to the federal level. And there's a whole bunch of security we never see. But if you're, make, you're picking a terrorist target, you don't pick that one. Those costs above the level of just the private security forces and some of the local police policing aren't carried in the operational cost. And it's still 3.83 cents per kilowatt hour. And also not carried as insurance cost. The the yeah, right now in the United States, there's a $13 billion liability cap um, in the event of a nuclear incident. Um, so that means that private insurers say, hey, up to $13 billion, we'll pay. After that, taxpayer pays. And, and as I published recently, you know, the Fukushima, which was an unusual event for a number of different reasons, technically, operationally, geologically, you know, unlikely to happen to any of the reactors in the United States. But it's still, the liability there, the full liability of economic burdens upon the Japanese economy, including cleanup, including loss of trade, 
loss of brand, in terms of delayed shipments, in terms of a whole bunch of other things, is closer to a trillion dollars US. It's like 100 times higher than that $13 billion cap. And we're talking nuclear incidents which create exclusion zones of 150 square kilometers or 80 square miles or whatever, which is the Fukushima one, or the larger one in Chernobyl. That's entire areas which often have light industry and agriculture and potentially information places that are taken out of productive use. The United States dodged a bullet with Three Mile Island, thankfully. But those costs are unlikely, but of very high magnitude, you know, very high impact if they occur. And the concern about terrorist use of fissile materials is a real and viable one, which requires security. But if you look at the comparison, that's 3.83 cents per kilowatt hour, not including financing costs, not including above that insurance cost, just to run the nuclear reactors in the United States, assuming they're all paid for. What is the price of wind and solar projected to be in 2030? without subsidies at all. It's expected to be 20, you know, two cents per kilowatt hour then. Right now, power purchase agreements with the ITC and PTC are coming in around two cents per kilowatt hour, which is about half of what nuclear costs just to run. Uh, That's why the US nuclear fleet is getting bailed out with actual additional subsidies. In addition to the subsidies, it's already getting, which are permanent in the tax code, unlike the PTC and ITC. So thorium, represents um, fourth-generation reactors, which are commercially unproven. It represents an entire new you know, multi-country supply chain. It requires the security around that supply chain. It requires security around the sites. It requires security around the irradiated uh, infrastructure after use. Just like fusion irradiates the infrastructure and the, you know, the reactor itself, even though it doesn't use uranium or a fissile material, to create power, it does create radiation, which turns, which in turn creates radioactive waste. Why would we do that when we have proven wind and solar technology that is cheap and reliable? And and even if you add in um, storage needs, storage costs to those wind and solar prices, uh, you're still undercutting nuclear tremendously. Uh, and and, you're, and it's, it's, it's proven, it's, it's here, it's, it's following uh, learning curves for, for bringing costs down. There just, there's no rash, no real reason why you would choose A or over B when you have, when B is so much cheaper and already here and A is more expensive and not really here. <laughs> just doesn't make sense. Even yesterday, I was having a conversation with a guy. He's a CEO of a games company here. He sits on the board of the Digital Innovation Supercluster here. And he's saying, you know, he's talking about where he parks his car when he drives in from the suburb he lives in. And he says, you know, it's great. I just take it there. The valet charges me 20 bucks and he plugs it in. I said, oh, what are you driving? A Honda Clarity a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. I said, yeah, it's like, you know, if I was to get a car, I, I'd be, you know, really working hard to convince my wife to get the Model 3 performance. And he said, oh yeah, but I needed a car and I couldn't wait a year and a half. And the plug-in hybrid, he gets 150 miles per gallon combined based on mostly just plugging it in and occasionally filling it up, mm-hmm. even though he lives 50 kilometers out of downtown, you know, 30 miles out of downtown, because it's good enough. 
Yeah, it's a good car. I, I think, yeah, I mean, at this point, at this stage, it's tremendously difficult to get, compete with the Model 3, which is potentially a problem for, for the EV market in some ways because other automakers can't get scale up because they can't compete. And if they don't get scale up, it makes it harder to compete. So uh, it's, it just yeah. it sort of gives Tesla, it looks like more more and more of a lead. But uh, but the Clarity plug-in hybrid is is a nice, it's a nice vehicle for that for certain niche situations and and like he said you know timing wise it worked for him uh and it's a fairly big car you can drive electric a lot it's a nice car it, i it's it's in, in our top top bracket of of alternatives if you for some reason a tesla is not available or doesn't work if, i know i know if you can buy a tesla <laughs> just, why wouldn't you it's just hard to, to find it's just increasingly hard to find those situations especially with now with the with the standard range plus model three all over the place well, let's take a an example. Let's say in 20 years, we have huge amounts of excess electricity from wind and solar and maybe some nuclear. And it's doing nothing at night. So let's make hydrogen and just pump that into gas stations and make hydrogen cars. Is the answer to wait for hydrogen cars because they might become available in 20 years? Or to use the electric cars we have today that are more than fit for purpose? It's like when you're hiring somebody, if you need a bachelor level of competence and knowledge and intellectual skill, is a PhD automatically better? Do you wait for a PhD to walk through the door? Do you hire the first bachelors who meets the minimum requirements walking through the door? And thorium doesn't, it's like a 20 year from now pipe dream compared to what we have right now, which works just fine. Yeah, I have to be honest. Uh... I like Yang in general. I like he's he's fairly science based, math based. He's he's funny. He's he's got progressive views on things. Some things I, I value. I'm a little bit shocked that he get, that he somehow got roped into the thorium bandwagon. Like again, it's like the thing with Bill Gates too. I mean, it's one thing that Bill Gates got pulled into nuclear. And we had a really fascinating piece. I forget who did the original that we were bouncing off of. I think it was Green Tech Media, someone at Green Tech Media. Maybe it was Joe Rama and Think Progress. Um, but uh, it's one thing that he initially got sort of somehow persuaded to get into nuclear. It's a very different thing that he hasn't figured out by now. It's a waste of time and money. But uh, this is my challenge. I, I could have made the argument and you know that Schellenberger or, or Gates made in 2005-2006. It wasn't obvious that nuclear was in absolute and relative decline as a form of electrical generation globally. It wasn't obvious that wind and solar would be so cheap. It wasn't obvious that grid reliability would not be impacted and as far as we can tell is at least correlated to enhanced grid reliability. It wasn't, and, and, it wasn't obvious battery costs would come down so much. And, oh. and, There there are good reasons. And HVDC, I mean, if you think about the advances in the past 15 years in the wind, water, and solar space that, you know, Jacobson talks about. Yes, we have to to use Jacobson's language. He's he's really the the best in the field, I think, at this. uh, this. He is, he is. But, you know, think about it. The cost of battery storage has plummeted. The cost of wind has plummeted. The cost of solar has plummeted. We now have case studies. And you know, my my tagline, you may or may not know my tagline, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. You know, that's not original to me. That's a William Gibson, the same guy who wrote Neuromancer and other great books, a Vancouver guy like me now, you know, Canadian author. The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. We can look at places like Germany, which have over 40% 
of renewables providing the annual demand and peaks over 100% of hourly demand from renewables. And yet they have one of the most reliable grids in Europe at 15 minutes average downtime per consumer. Compare and contrast that to the United States average, which is over two hours of average downtime per consumer. And then let's go to Texas. There was, there was a there's a Danish minister who recently was basically trolling Trump and and, and uh, this, these talking points, uh, pointing out uh, how much you know they get from renewables, especially wind and and their you know, number uh, blackout time per year. Uh, I forget what I just watched it yesterday. It's down but, around 15 minutes as well. Yeah, and then yeah, and then she let's, let's, the US. That's not invented here, right? That's 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 Europe, and Europe is a bunch of people who you know the, nothing learned in Europe applies to the United States. Um, so let's look at Texas. Texas, that's like Republican, you know, heartthrob territory, regardless of Beto O'Rourke's failure to actually, you know, break the bar in, in Texas and displant whoever, you know, supplant whoever he supplanted. But Texas, it's a Republican state. You know, George, George W. Bush's ranch is there. Longhorns and oil wells. Well, a decade ago, Texas had the worst grid reliability in the United States of any of the states. It had cheap electricity, but it was pretty tough to be sure that when you plugged something in, there would be juice coming into your appliance. So let's fast forward to 2019. Now 20% of their annual demand comes from mostly wind, but increasingly solar. They're about 18 and 2%, I think, this year. Maybe 19 and 2. They're going to be over 20% very quickly. The price of electricity has remained among the lowest in the United States among states. They're ninth cheapest electricity on average per state, while massively expanding renewables as a portion of their piece. And further, they've gone from dead last to 34th in terms of grid reliability. 34th is nothing to write home about, but it's a lot better than 50th. This is the story of renewables that we've seen over the past decade. A greater penetration of renewables comes with grid management solutions which are proven around the world that increase grid stability, increase grid reliability without adding substantial costs. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's something worth highlighting, uh, folks. You know, a lot of times people want to look at one piece of a puzzle and uh, look at the pros and cons of that piece without focusing on what changes overall. And what you're pointing out here is there are known solutions to improve grid reliability, grid res- uh, responsiveness to demand and supply changes. And these work, but they're not widely implemented for various reasons. When you roll in a lot of renewables, you bring those solutions with renewables so you you end up you change this you change that you add these these other grid improvements and that overall ends up as you're pointing out making a a more reliable more secure grid so so this whole talking point of oh the wind only which unfortunately you see in 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 university press releases all the time about renewable advancements the window only blows so much the sun only when the sun's not shining when it's blowing you can't get electricity blah 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 but there's you know that's all that's just looking at it in a too narrow of a way so this really fascinating point that you that you point out just to make sure it's not not missed by anyone who's zoned yeah, out from from a few phrases and we'll take the next piece we'll just take uh, uh, germany everybody keeps giving germany grief because the consumer cost of electricity is so high around 30 cents usd per kilowatt hour. oh my god it's the most expensive electricity in europe oh my god no no american would pay that it makes it so easy for fox to cover cover this topic <laughs> it does 
But even the World Nuclear Association in their page on Germany says Germany has among the lowest wholesale costs of electricity in Europe. In other words, the consumer cost is a policy decision that is only somewhat tied to the actual cost of delivering electricity from renewables. It's a policy that uses market mechanisms to increase efficiency among consumers. And then isn't, isn't it actually several different policies wrapped up there? There's, there's different, type, different fees and taxes included, but the overall, the sort of biggest aim of it, my understanding, is if the price of electricity is high, people will save energy, and that's the, best, that's the lowest cost of... Megawatts of, are of always the cheapest watts. And that's what Germany does, but it does make a talking point for people like Schellenberger to misstate the impact of renewables, which is unfortunate, but I, I give Germany all props. They reduced their greenhouse gases by over 30% since 1990. For their entire economy, their economy has grown, their population has grown. By every measure, they are one of the most successful countries in the world at consistently reducing greenhouse gas emissions since 1990. And their policies are working. So, well, I was, uh, I think we maybe cut this one off, but I definitely want to come back for another episode. Maybe we can record. Uh, I did warn you at the beginning, tomorrow. gravity was not my strong suit. Yeah. No, no, this is perfect. <laughs> this is ideal. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interviews where you have different topics to roll in. If you run out of time, uh, that's always got to be a part of uh, your planning. Uh, but in my perspective, it's best when you go so, so deep in and, uh, and well into one that you have to leave the others for other other episodes. But I, 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 we obviously did go into other topics as well, but uh, it was a fascinating discussion and we definitely have to record on geoengin- the geoengineering topic, carbon capture and storage, carbon engineering, and uh, I'm sure that will lead to 12 other places <laughs> along the way. But, uh, maybe I'm sure we- it will. Zach, it's been really great to finally hear your voice and have a conversation with you. Yeah, this is awesome. I've thought, I thought several times here, man, I, that I can, if I'm ever swamped, I really just leave it to you to record episodes with people you, you'd like to talk to. Uh, but, other, but selfishly, I would be, <laughs> be talking to you as much as possible because this is, this is just, uh, for me, this is, you know, this is what we're sort of, a, you know, we try to be about on Clean Technica is just diving into interesting matters uh, and, and clean tech solutions. But uh, just, uh, I think Bob Wallace, who was our comment moderator for years, said, said it well. He was always trying to create a kind of graduate school kind of atmosphere for discussions. And, and for me, this is like that kind of ideal kind of setting where we're talking about things in a, in a way that goes beyond the, the superficial headlines and whatnot. Uh, but that's all thanks, almost all thanks to you. I'm contributing a little bit, but uh, really appreciate it. Thank thanks. you so much. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.